is the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Good afternoon. I'm Callie Buchanan. Thanks for joining me on this Friday. Hope it's gearing up for a great weekend for you. I'm certainly looking forward to mine. I've enjoyed spending time with you this week and I'll be doing it again next week. Looking forward to that as well. On the program today, we're going to get the latest situation for Queensland beekeepers, those caught up in the varroa mite detections in almond orchards on the New South Wales-Victoria border. I'll bring you an update. Literally the latest we've got before half past 12. We'll check in on the prawn season as well. It's well underway in the Gulf. And, of course, they were setting out without the motherships they would usually have. So we'll see how that's progressed. And if you're uh, looking at fertilising anything, you've probably, if you've ever listened to Gardening Talkback on ABC Radio Queensland, you've certainly heard the word potash getting around. A very interesting look at where it comes from. Uh, that's going to be on your radio in the next hour hour as well. This is the Queensland Country Hour. It's six past 12. Of course, you can always send me a text message. 0487 993 2 is the number to get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you today. What's ahead for the weekend for you? Is it hard work? Maybe you'll get some relaxing time. I'd love to hear from you. 0487 993 2 Now, if you're in the livestock industry, You'd know sheep and cattle prices are well below the highs enjoyed by producers over the past few years. It's making it difficult for some people to justify keeping animals in their systems. Some are saying prices are just not covering the cost of production. Patrick Hutchinson is the Chief Executive of the Australian Meat Industry Council, which represents retailers, processors and small good manufacturers across the country. He says the reduced prices farmers are now getting for their livestock is simply a market cycle. But he says the council is open to conversations with the supply chain about how to remove meat and livestock price volatility. Firstly, we've seen obviously record prices, not just over the last 18 months, but over the last three years. And that's been across Australia, obviously due to climatic conditions, certainly in the eastern states. Now, that's also been... Uh, occurred because we've had a supply change. So we've had a flock rebuild over the past uh, certainly four years, but certainly really ramped up in 21 and 22. That meant supply was very limited. And just like anything, any commodity out there in the world, supply is limited and more people are going to be trying to compete as hard as they can and price will inflate. Now, uh, welcome to the middle of uh, 2023. Uh, The flock has increased greatly. A lot of lambs all of a sudden on the market, just like any other commodity in the world, uh, that price will drop. Fantastic prices for farmers a long time ago. Coming back to reality now, uh, a lot of processes, just like any other business in the world, having lost money over the last three years, are certainly recouping money. So the industry is really playing catch-up, trying to cover gaps where processors were paying some of those high prices to farmers? Is, is that the case? Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's called market volatility. And um, unfortunately, uh, there's a situation where uh, our industry rides, like a lot of industries around the world, rides huge volatility. Uh, a lot of those things can 
and are outside of our control, sort of on an international basis. Uh, what we're seeing at the moment too is, whilst we do have strong demand, we still have an exchange rate that's a lot lower. So our product overseas is still is obviously still cheap. Um, so we can, as you know, as well with with higher volumes start to push product into the market. And again, that export price and that export level uh, is also of assistance on that domestic price. But I do know through the supply chain, I know at wholesale there's a drop, has been starting, uh, prices starting to drop because there's, uh, it has been that rebalancing. And also bonded product, probably frozen, has uh, also moved through the market that was probably bought for a hell of a lot more uh, in value six months previous. But when does that catch up, that part of the sector, that part of the supply chain, turn to price gouging? Is that, is that what's going on? Oh, absolutely not. Because, I mean, I think the, the terminology about price gouging is far more attuned to ready-made products from, a, from an exceptionally low base in cost. And I think one of the problems that we face as well is Accusations around price gouging are always brought to the people who pay for something, not the people that sell something. So by that rationale, uh, you, know, you could easily have said that uh, 18 months to two years ago, the average cocky was out there price gouging at $9 a kilo on, uh, on lamb. We don't say that because we know that there is market volatility in place. And when the opportunity arises, farmers take the best of that situation, earn very good money when it's there, for want of a better term, time in the sun. And when it's a process, it's time in the sun, they do exactly the same. Unfortunately, this time, uh, we've also seen probably around about a 12% increase in wages over that period of time. Uh, we've seen about a 15% increase in energy and logistics post-COVID are still trying to stabilise themselves. I mean, at some uh, during COVID, we were when lamb was ex exceptionally expensive to go overseas, we were paying something like uh, $10,000 a container. I think that what we do need to do is really sit down across the board at a supply chain level and, and, and have the discussion. I mean, people enjoy market volatility when it works for them, but they don't obviously enjoy market volatility when it works against them. So we either start looking at the impacts of market volatility Hear from, hear from all sides. There's lots that we should be talking about. There's lots of understanding that needs to occur. And, you know, the Australian Media Industry Council is always up for the, the discussion uh, with strong peer-reviewed evidence about where the issues in volatility lie within the whole supply chain and what can we do about it. That's Patrick Hutchinson, the Chief Executive of the Australian Meat Industry Council. He was speaking to Belinda Varaschetti. What's your view? 0487 your uh, number to send me a text message around pricing volatility. Is it too volatile? Do you think it's time to have that conversation that Patrick Hutchinson is talking about? Of course, selling livestock is a big business and it is bringing more than just farmers out to the sale yards across the country. Apparently, hundreds of tourists are showing up every week to the Roma sale yards. Courtney Wilson joined them for a look behind the scenes in the southwest. Hey, Mark, you look PJ under the upper terms of good distance, ladies and gentlemen. 
to understand the logistics of livestock sales, there's no better place to go behind the scenes than the sale yards at Roma in southwestern Queensland. Sales are held here once a week without fail. They're well known and well regarded across the industry. Daniel Haslop is the general manager of the Roma sale yards. Today we've got 6,200 in the yards. A couple of weeks ago we had 10,000 and as a month of May we had one of our higher months for the last two years of around the 35,000 cattle through throughout here so it's a, a large operation. Because it is the largest cattle sale yards in the country, there is plenty of interest in what happens here. The prices at Roma often dictate the rest of the market. But it's not just graziers who are keen to see how the sales unfold. There are also plenty of tourists who want a sticky beak. We have cattle here. Hundreds of tourists uh, trip through the sale yards each week, guided by volunteers who are mostly all retired graziers from across the region. People like Lloyd Hearth, who ran a cattle station for 50 years before retiring and moving closer to town. He started taking tours six years ago and hasn't looked back. I got conned into it by a couple of the original tour guides. Lloyd's wealth of experience in the grazing industry means he's able to give tourists a valuable insight into what's really going on at the sale yards. Before they go in that gate. We have tourists from overseas. Last week I had two young uh, girls from Norway. The week before there were three men from Norway. We've had people from other European countries that's come in and yeah, have a look around. The experience is free and attracts all sorts of visitors, and plenty of them. Today, we've, for example, we've had uh, over 200 tourists and we've had busloads of uh, school children. We've had uh, people caravanning around and we've just also just had the general public who are, who are passing through. The sale yards have been set up in such a way as to allow visitors to get right in amongst the action without actually getting in the way. We get them down there around the scale area and they just become mesmerised. <laughs> and the live auction. What did he say? <laughs> I said, well, when you're buying, you'll certainly learn to understand what he said because <laughs> it's costing you dollars. One thing's for sure, in true country style, the guides are honest and open and definitely do not mince their words. There's three bulls over there, they're broken down, they're finished with, so they get their heads chopped off and made into meat pies. I think everyone realises that what we're trying to achieve here will, will be useful for the whole industry. The nature of the industry, which is extremely weather dependent, means it's inevitable that there are high highs and low lows. And that's never been more evident than at the sale yards over the past year. Our average dollar value now is, on 12 months ago, is less than $1,000. So it's a pretty big shift in, in a 12 month period. Carl Warren is a livestock auctioneer with 20 years' experience. If we go back five years ago, we're still seeing great prices at present. So if we could just find that happy medium, I, I think going forwards, we've probably found hopefully the bottom of the market and we just look for a bit more rain and look towards the end of the year to maybe see some strength. Rain or no rain, the show must go on. And it does, here in Roma, every week. Landline reporter Courtney Wilson with that story. You can take your own tour behind the scenes of the Roma Sale Yards on Landline this Sunday at half past 12. Jeez, I'd love to know 
some of the questions they must get from the tourists. Uh, if you've ever fielded one, I'd love to see it. 0487 2 is the number to send me a text. I think that would be quite an eye-opener to a couple of backpackers from Norway. It's 17 past 12. The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Now, it's been a week of stress, sleepless nights and tests of patience for Queensland's beekeepers caught up in the latest detections of varroa mite in almond orchards in the New South Wales-Victoria border. Of course, no issues with Queensland hives, but they have been in those purple surveillance zones that restricted their movement. But they've now been released from those zones and the last we heard they were waiting for their opportunity to return with their 11,500 hives to Queensland. It's a constantly evolving situation and here with the latest for you is Joe Martin, the State Secretary of the Queensland Beekeepers Association. Good afternoon, Joe. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. Look, I know you've been flat out in meetings and literally just stepped out of one, but yesterday you were waiting to see those permits issued for the 14 apiarists hoping to return to the state. What's the latest? Yeah, so I can confirm that the permit conditions had been finalised and a lot of our beekeepers uh, caught up in that purple uh, emergency surveillance zone had been contacted by the department and encouraged to start the process of applying for those permits. Um, The department were uh, upfront. They made sure that they could resource the uh, volume of applications. We're only talking about a small number, obviously, that were inbound, but I'm pleased to report that the department have been able to process those applications. Uh, Trucks have come through Queensland uh, and now those beehives are being located on uh, extremely isolated uh, properties to undertake their quarantine period uh, and that will allow for the process uh, for bees to be checked. So, of course, those bees are going to be checked in the first seven days of their arrival. Uh, And then we're going to, um, in consultation with with the Queensland Government, uh, they're going to be completing a a more high efficiency and effectiveness surveillance operation on those bees to uh, ensure that they're clean and clear of varroa mite. Uh, But those beekeepers are going to be under some very, very strict reporting uh, requirements for a minimum of 12 months moving forward. So we've got a a few beekeepers that have been able to situate their bees. So that's really, really good news. Uh, A few guys are already spinning around to do the second trip. Um, But successfully at the moment, the operation has been managed uh, and everything has gone smoothly so far. I imagine that's a relief for those beekeepers uh, to be able to re-enter Queensland, but it's a long road ahead uh, with the surveillance, you know, talking about a 12-month program. That's a lot of extra pressure on those those guys. Yeah, look, it, it, it is in one aspect. Um, the immediate next few months, um, probably the next two months, these guys are going to have to go through um, a higher level um, of, of surveillance exercises um, that they will be working with the Biosecurity Queensland, the, the, the Varroa Mite Prevention and Preparedness Program to make sure that those bees are cleared. But once we've gone through that stage, uh, those beekeepers will be required to report their movements back to the department, most importantly, and they'll also need to meet those regular frequency of uh, surveillance. So that'll be alcohol washing, just to make sure that we've got a very clear uh, picture of the health of those bees and any potential infestation moving forward. But the department have been very, very clear 
uh, in making sure that they are identifying areas which are very much isolated uh, and away from other beekeepers, um, away from coastal regions and things like that. So I think the rest of the industry um, can just have, have a moment to breathe. Um, there is still a lot of anxiety out there. Mm. Um, I've certainly uh, received a lot of phone calls from very, very worried beekeepers at the moment. But um, ultimately, you know, the decision has been made by the Department of Agriculture and Fisheries and Biosecurity Queensland in more general. Uh, and I'm, I'm confident that their team will be working through the processes to make sure that we can clear these bees. Uh, but fundamentally, I, I've really got to reiterate that the, the bees that are coming back from Victoria present a very, very, very low risk. Uh, but we are using a higher rate of protocol to make sure that we can clear these bees to give everyone the confidence moving forward that they are nice and clean. I guess that reinforces the message for those whose hives haven't been across the border around the necessity for their own surveillance programs and the reporting of those findings as well. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's, it, 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 it is a message that I continue to beg my pardon, but harp on about. Um, it is the responsibility of every beekeeper in Queensland to get out there and actively undertake your spring hive management. So at the moment, I'm, I'm also on top of the varroa mite uh, emergency. We're also getting a lot of phone calls and emails to our website about swarming. Um, we're getting a lot of phone calls from people that are still interested in getting into beekeeping uh, at the moment. So, you know, my, 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 my message to all of those people, whether you're interested to get into beekeeping or you've got bees at the moment, is making sure that you're understanding pest diseases as first and foremost, if you've got bees, get out there and check there there is check them there there is no excuses at the moment um it is fantastic weather conditions yes it's damn dry at the moment i'd love to see uh, a weather pattern come through to dump a little bit of rain over the the course of queensland over the next few months but get out there check your bees survey your bees report your surveillance do your standard endemic disease testing as well you know we've still got things like american fowl brood that people need to be looking for and, and managing and notifying the department of the existence of AFB in their hives. Um, small hive beetle may not be as, as an exacerbated a problem with these dry skin conditions at the moment, but you know there, there's a lot of management there. And if you're wanting to learn more about beekeeping, uh, please don't go out and buy a box of bees. <laughs> please join your local club first of all, uh, and, and, and learn from someone, learn the art of beekeeping. Um, probably moving forward with whatever the outcomes may be, husbandry and caring for bees must come first and it is something that even beekeepers that have got uh you know eight and nine decades of experience running bees will always say to me that they've always continuing to learn about these bees so learning and education is really really pivotal uh but yeah the call to action is if you're a beekeeper no excuses let's let's smash out some hive surveillance this weekend get that information reported to b123 or call it through to DAF on 13 25 23. Uh, and consumers, everyone listening, um, you can, the best thing that you can do that would really make me happy is go out and empty the shells of Australian honey this weekend. If you're out doing your grocery, so, you know, your supermarket shopping and refilling your pantry, grab a jar of Australian honey. I don't care what brand you buy, just make sure that it's Ridgidig 100% according to the country of origin label. And let's show these guys some absolute love. 
Joe Martin, thank you for keeping us updated throughout the week and we'll stay in touch as the situation develops and as always, thanks for your time on the Queensland Country Hour. Not a problem. Have a good weekend and check your hives. Thanks, Callie. Thank you, Joe. Joe Martin is the State Secretary of the Queensland Beekeepers Association. And yes, those uh, details again, if you're doing those that surveillance work, even if you're getting those negative results, pop it through to the B, that's BEE123 app, or you can call DAF on 13 25 23 and always your local beekeeper association as a resource. It's 25 past 12. On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour. Now, the prawn season is well underway in the Gulf and a major northern prawn trawler says it secured alternative mothership services after Sea Swift pulled out, but larger barges are needed to sustain the fishery. Now, Sea Swift announced about a month before the season started that it wouldn't be providing those services because of viability issues. Fishers in the Gulf of Carpentaria were then left needing to secure refuelling services from elsewhere. Austral Fisheries' Andy Prendergast says he gained access to another barge by about the middle of August, which was just in time to keep his fleet running. The Torres Express turned up in, into the fishery five days later and started fuelling our boats and just caught them, you know, just caught a lot of them in time when they were getting down fairly low in their reserves. And it's been fantastic. A lot of challenges. It's it's like running a, a completely new business um, because um, look, the owners of the vessel is still very proactive in its management, but we sort of manage the other side of it, and and uh, it's it's just like something um, that we've never done before. So it's it's take it's very time consuming. Takes up all our time. And um, I recently commented to one of my colleagues, I, I don't know what we used to do with August, but we don't do that anymore. Now we're running a mothership. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it's, it's um, look, we got there. We're only delivering half the service at the moment. Mothership traditionally delivered fuel and water stores and unloaded our vessels. Well, we're gonna, still going to have to go to Corumba to unload, but a couple of our vessels are big enough so that they don't need to go in for the whole period that they'll be fishing and the rest of them uh, will only have to go in once. Has the change in mothership and, and the different way that you're having to work things this season had any impact on where and how you're able to catch the tiger prawns? Yes, it has, um, because everyone's been really conservative with the way they're fishing um, and because we're servicing the mothership out of Karumba, we're bringing fuel and all the quiet stores and everything through Corumba, the boats are predominantly hanging around at Corumba. Whereas, you know, our fishery is 6,000 kilometres long from basically starts just north of Weeper and goes all the way around to the Kimberleys. So um, everyone's sort of been focusing all the effort within a couple of hundred miles of Corumba. So, yeah, it has had an impact on where we go. But fortunately, we, we do surveys every year, recruitment surveys every February. And every second year we do another set of surveys in July. All the surveys indicated that where we're fishing now was going to give us the best opportunity anyway. With that competition, though, and, and the need to stay a little bit closer to Corumba, what are your catches looking like? Have you, you know, can we talk figures? 
Oh, I'd rather not. They're all secret squirrel stuff at this point <laughs> in the time. Fair but, enough. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, the catches are okay for the first two or three weeks. So we just finished the fourth week and uh, we've approached the full moon. The full moon tends to, in some parts of our fishery, to slow the catches down a little bit, whether it's the luminosity, whether it's the tidal movement, I'm not sure. But it seems to be that if any of the four phases, that one will be the one that has the biggest negative impact on us. So uh, we've just got to ride this out and get into the last quarter and see if the next stage of the fishery picks up. So traditionally in August, we fish in waters less than 30 metres. And uh, after August, we move into what we call the deeper water, which is only another you know, 10 metres deeper, so we're out in 40 metres, and we generally stay there until the end of the year. We're fishing a slightly different type of tiger prawn, the the um, groove tiger, rather than the brown tiger, which is considered more inshore. So, uh, yeah, we, we've got high hopes for next month, but we've just got to get through this moon phase. I guess looking forward to next year as well, You've found a solution to the the mothership problem. Is this a practical solution to take forward to the next season? Well, at the moment, it's only half a solution because we're not doing those unloads. The mothership's there to primarily to keep us at sea for the whole time and underwrites our profitability. Uh, you can imagine steaming 11 big trawlers to port every two or three weeks would be time-consuming, expensive and uh, you lose production out of it. So the mothership plays a critical role in the fishery, but it's got to do both. It's got to fuel us, water us, give us the stores and packaging or whatever else we need, but it has to remove our product. And um, uh, the one that we're currently using uh, could do it for a fleet of smaller vessels, but I don't think it'll have the capacity going forward. So... I, I, I don't know how we get around that, whether the owner of that vessel would be willing to modify it to meet the needs of the industry or we go searching for another vessel or um, you know, the, the, there is another MPF operator who bought the old C-Swift barge, who, which is quite large compared to the one we're operating out of and could potentially have the capacity to service the whole fishery. It's just whether they have the desire. Anyway, well, time will tell. Northern prawn trawler operator Andy Prendergast speaking with Bridget Herman. It's 29 to 1. On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour. We'll head to the Weather Bureau very soon and give you the latest on the weekend ahead in the weather and a bit of a look at the start of next week as well. If you've got weather to report, I'd love to hear it. 0487 993 is the number to send me a text. Now, about half the food that's produced on this planet is grown using some sort of commercial fertiliser. Yet some countries, including New Zealand and the Netherlands, are restricting how it's applied in an attempt to reduce damage to the environment. It's got the Australian fertiliser industry worried about whether a similar policy will be introduced here. Here's National Rural Reporter Kath Sullivan. So your ears might start to pop a little bit. So it's the same thing as a dive tank. Below the surface of the Canadian prairies, outside the city of Saskatoon, 
lies one of the world's largest reserves of potash. There's the till, then the shale, then the sandstone. Potash is a potassium-rich mineral and key ingredient in fertiliser applied to paddocks around the globe. Chad Litzenberger is this mine's superintendent. The agriculture sector that we're in, and so sometimes I feel like we get a little disconnected from the day-to-day activities and what we're doing in a mining operation, but the purpose that we have is to truly support feeding the world. That's because fertilisers, primarily made up of nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium, help farmers to grow more. But above the surface, the Canadian government wants farmers to use less and it's set a target to limit emissions from fertiliser application by 30% by 2030. I wouldn't say anyone anticipated this kind of announcement. Alberta-based journalist Trevor Back says farmers rely on fertiliser to grow their crops and aren't impressed by the new plan. It appears to be met with somewhat of a mixture of confusion, frustration and, for some people, hostility. The Australian government's working on a plan to reduce emissions from agriculture here as part of its net zero by 2050 target, but it hasn't specified plans for fertiliser use. Stephen Annals from the industry group Fertiliser Australia worries Canberra may look to follow the Canadian example. If they were to copy what other countries are doing, what other jurisdictions are doing, the solution might have some undesired effects and may not have the effect that they actually want. Could you elaborate on those undesired effects? Oh, lower yields, uh, less food production and um, you know, potentially lower exports for Australia. Professor Mark Howden from the Australian National University says emissions from applying nitrogen fertilisers on Australian soil amount to roughly the equivalent of 14 million tonnes of carbon dioxide each year. Uh, so that's a few percent of our total emissions. So it's significant, but it's not a, a massive contributor like, say, our electricity system. It essentially comes with the territory of food production. So what we need to do is put in place um, efficiency measures so we can actually use less fertiliser to get the same amount of uh, food production. Uh, and we also need to look at research and development so we actually have tools in our, in our toolkit so that we can actually reduce those greenhouse gas emissions and improve environmental sustainability. In the meantime, grain grower Sally Zucker says Australia can't risk compromising food supplies. If we don't have access to fertiliser, I don't quite know where you're going to get your food from. Really, we need fertiliser to grow a world crop to feed everybody. Simple. That's South Australian grain grower Sally Zucker ending that report from Kath Sullivan. It's 25 to 1. This week on Landline, we go down a potash mine. But what really blows my mind is the fact that this mineral coming out here will be exported to almost every continent. And behind the scenes at the cattle sales. We call it game day. So all the preparation that's gone on with our clients, working out our markets, what best suits, where we need to sell. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. I am very keen to get a look inside that potash mine in Canada. It'll be incredible, I think. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. Let's get the latest from the Weather Bureau now. Sean Kennedy is on duty. Good afternoon. Sorry, Shane. Shane Kennedy's on duty. How are you doing, Shane? Afternoon, Kelly. I'm doing well. How about you? I'm very well, thank you. I just uh, rechristened you. My apologies. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> it's been a long week. Uh, what are we looking at in the uh, in the weather today? I see that um, there's still a few little showers sort of around the the southeast, but not much to report, I imagine. That's right. Yeah, largely all cleared off today. So a lot of sunshine across the state. Just a little bit of cloud in eastern districts and a little bit of smoke haze uh, just around Townsville today. So all of those showers and thunderstorms all clearing off offshore today. So really not expecting anything too much. Just a very slim chance around our parts of the southeast coast of Fringe today. And should be pretty warm once again as we have this first day of spring, Kelly. So generally uh, expecting temperatures to reach uh, just the high 20s through uh, central Queensland and up to the, the low 30s in the far northwest. Yeah, I do feel like you know spring kind of arrived a little bit early for us, and it seems to be continuing. So not too much impact of that um, that little little blip in in colder temperatures. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it has been a fairly warm August. The um, majority of the state, most places, uh, one to two degrees above uh, average, but uh, with those maximum and minimum temperatures, and expecting a little bit of uh, cooler air across southern Queensland, mainly in the southeast over the weekend, but fairly short-lived, expecting it to start to warm up quite a bit, particularly in the southwest on Monday and in that heat extending across southern Queensland uh, next week. And throughout the whole period, though, Kelly, we are expecting we'll still see those high fire dangers continue for most uh, inland districts. So still be uh, dry enough and dry enough fuel that it could cause a few little problems there for the next several days. Yes, I did see that that fire weather warning for the Gulf uh, has been cancelled, but we do have that fire danger, high fire danger for northwestern, inland, central and southern districts and the Wide Bay and Burnett. That's right, and it will likely continue uh, for the next several days, so mainly contracting uh, inland tomorrow. And uh, probably the next fire watch point will be the Darling Downs and Granite Belt on Monday at this stage. It's pretty marginal for needing a warning. There's a bit of locally extreme fire danger there, so keep a close eye on that as things approach. And, and weather-wise, Kelly, so not really not expecting too much on the weekend. Mm. Uh, tomorrow we may see just a lo- very low chance, around a 10 20% chance of seeing a shower or thunderstorm around the Capricornia coast. So includes Gladstone, but uh, Rockhampton sort of right on the, the fringe there and um, expecting even less on the Sunday at this stage. And Looking further ahead, uh, Monday and Tuesday, just a low chance we could see uh, some showers and isolated thunderstorms in the southeast, so the Darling Downs and Granite Belt, and potentially a little bit further inland on the Tuesday, but really not expecting any significant rainfall. We might see a millimetre or two around the Granite Belt on Monday, but that's about uh, the worst of it over the next several days. So pretty stable over the next few days. What's the, the next big feature moving into the charts for us to keep an eye on? Still looking pretty light on, uh, even towards the end of next week at this stage, Kelly. Mm. We see like a series of wheat troughs sort of sweep across the state uh, starting on Tuesday next week, and we get uh, another one and potentially even a third one following up next weekend, but they really look like they'll struggle to bring too much weather, just there's, there's low chances of isolated showers and maybe a storm or two. And So a similar story on the Thursday, we could see another uh, brief round of storms that nothing like we've seen over the past few days is expected. And looking at the coastal waters, still looking at pretty good boating conditions for the weekend? It should be pretty mild up there, Kelly. So just getting above that 15 to 20 knot range uh, just in the, the Gulf, southern Gulf of Times and just over the very far northern waters, so the Torres Strait and the Pincher, and generally just uh, 10 to 15 knots east, east and northeasterlies for much of our northern and central waters. And the exception in the southeast is pretty mild at the moment, but we're expecting a, a southeasterly wind surge to start pushing in. Um, moving north up that southeast coast uh, later this afternoon. So expect a period of 15 to 25 knots uh, starting late today and continuing into tomorrow. It pr- should be pretty short lived and not make it too far north of Gurry. Shane Kennedy from the Weather Bureau, thanks for your time on the Queensland Country Hour. Thanks, Kelly. Have a good afternoon. It is 22 1. 
You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Now, you may know Collinsville as that mining town that's about 50 k's or 50 minutes drive, I should say, inland from Bowen. But last week, there were people from all over the country there, not to talk about coal mining, but to in- compete in a competition which has a very simple rule. Bring in the biggest feral hog. The Bacon Busters comp was held and Sue Lorne is the head of department at the Collinsville State High School and a member of the PNC, which runs that event as its major fundraiser for the year. She tells Lucy Cooper it's about a lot more than just pig hunting. Bacon Busters is basically a an event which is held. A lot of people consider it a pig hunting event, but it's far more than that. It's really like a huge fate, I would say, um, is the best way to describe it because we've got beyond the pig hunt, which is a minor part of it, we've got um, market stalls and we've got rides for the kids. You know, there's lots of um, food stalls, but then we also have like a mini bike carna for young kids to ride their motorbikes and do a course. We've got Ironman events, we've got dog events, a ute comp. And then at night time, we've got uh, live bands who play um, right through until midnight. So yeah, it's a full day program. It's been going on for a number of years now. How did this year compare to previous years? Was it just as popular as ever? Absolutely. And it was the biggest one that we have had so far. So we judge it, I suppose, based on our nominations. um, And that's for our registrations for the event um, in terms of people buying competitive packs. Uh, Last year, I think we had just over 230. This year, we had 268. So that was great. And, you know, beyond that, you I'd say we probably have over a thousand people who who come and patronise a day. A a part of of all of this and what would attract a lot of people is the pig hunt itself. What was the heaviest pig? Okay, so the heaviest um, pig that was brought in was in our open boar category and the boar was 142 kilos. This event itself then, you know, a, a big discussion topic in agriculture is wild pigs and their prevalence. Did you find this year we're a lot brought in given their populations have exploded so much? Oh, look, um, often the Whitsunday Council does um, some culling prior to our event and that didn't occur this year. And I think that that was probably a major contributor to the fact that we saw a lot more pigs being brought in like people were arriving with quite a number, quite a load. Um, and so, yeah, and, you know, the ones they bring in probably are only a portion of the ones that they do catch. So, no, an extraordinary number of pigs were brought in. So whilst just a bit of a fun competition for people to do, it, it's actually helping out the area and the landscape. I mean, oh, Collinsville's very sure. piggy country, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. We've got a lot of farming communities around, um, a lot of cattle farming. So um, definitely here. And a lot of people don't actually hunt in the Collinsville area. We have people travelling from from quite a long way away. Um, so they, they have properties to obviously hunt on. Um, and so it's not just the Collinsville area that's actually benefiting from this. The competition itself then, what was that kind of area? And, and did you get properties to say yes and no you're allowed to come on and and hunt no we don't 
We've got no involvement in terms of who goes hunting where, and we don't ever approach um, people to ask whether they, people can go onto their property. So really, it's up to the people who are in the competition to locate and source their own properties. But we had people from, you know, down in New South Wales. We had people um, from Biloela, quite a long way away. And people might actually travel, say, four or five hundred um, kilometres away, if not more, do their hunting and then return for the weigh-in. As you mentioned at the start, this is actually a fundraising event. Do you know how much you guys managed to raise for the local PNC? Um, this year we've probably raised about 20000 uh, Our donations this year were down uh, based on previous numbers by about 20000 So to have made $20,000 profit is a good outcome and we're happy with that. So what does the future hold for Boar Busters? 2024 is going to be our 10th event. So that's pretty exciting for us. And um, it's going to be huge. We're going to make it really memorable. Sue Lawn is a member of the Collinsville PNC that recently held that Bacon Busters fundraiser event, speaking there with our Lucy Cooper. Now, while we're talking about local Queensland events... Fascinators, designer dresses and uncomfortably fashionable high heels are all part and parcel of a classic Queensland racing meet. What about first-class plane tickets from Melbourne? Anyone who's been to a race day in regional Queensland knows how competitive the fashions on the field can get in all of the categories – But it seems there's a new breed of wealthy fashionista raising the stakes to a whole new level, skewing the local competition. Arabella Kulak is the Vice President and Fashions on the Field Committee member for the Cairns Amateur Carnival. She's speaking here with Adam Stephen. Look, I wouldn't say we've had a a raft of complaints, but it is something that we as a committee are very aware of. And look, we do want all of our interstate competitors to attend our carnival. Um, it's wonderful that we've reached this level where we're attracting such incredible and fierce competition. But I mean, look, we need to acknowledge our beautiful local ladies. Quite often, um, our local ladies will win all of our open categories anyway. So it's really just about ensuring fairness and, and maintaining the balance for but competitors. Are these itinerant style mongers doing this all of their own accord, or are they getting backed by fashion labels to try and win as many competitions as possible? Look, um, if people are paid or sponsored to attend, um, they're actually ineligible to enter. So the people that are competing, um, they're doing this um, on their own pocket. Quite often they spend, you know, months designing, crafting their outfits and millinery themselves. But Arabella, it's actually a thing for people to fly around the country and just go from one fashions of the field to another. Like this is something that, that some people do. Yeah, look, it is. But I think it's because there's such a love for the competition, for the fashions competition. It's great for our economy to have people flying in, seeing what the local area has to offer and competing in these competitions. But again, it is about balancing the need to keep the locals coming back for more and, you know, introduce interstate competitors. I mean, it can be quite a letdown if people have flown in from other parts of the country and they think they've done a great job not to win. Is there an element of having to manage expectations or deal with upset people that comes with the terrain of being a judge? A lot of competitors know that 
you know, not everyone can walk away with a sash. We always encourage people to wear something that they feel fabulous in and they feel wonderful so showcasing to the judges. I think people understand that there can only really be a few winners. The races are still on. There's fabulous events surrounding the, you know, the fashions competition. There's more than just fashions, even if the, the sole purpose of the trip is to, you know, parade on that catwalk. Cairns Amateurs Carnival Vice President Arabella Kulak speaking to Adam Stephen. I reckon we can compete with the best of them from Melbourne in any case. So uh, looking forward to seeing the fashions in the field this spring. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's 12 to 1. Know a young person from regional Australia with a story to tell? Let them know they can enter the ABC Haywire competition and tell it like it is. I love being on the farm. I'm learning English. You matter. So does your mental health. Entries can be a written story, an audio recording or a video. It is just as cool as it sounds. Winners get their stories on the ABC and take part in the Haywire Regional Youth Summit. Enter at abc.net.au slash haywire. And hurry, the competition closes September 1. That's today. Today's the last day if you're deadline driven. There's a chance to get those last-minute in- entries into the Haywire competition. It's uh, community-changing and life-changing for some of the people that participate. For the next 10 minutes or so, we're going to do a bit of a whip around the world because there's a few interesting things happening around the globe that I think you might be keen to learn about. We're going to start with trade talks between Australia and the European Union. Now, they've resumed about a proposed free trade agreement But more than five years into discussions, there are still some questioning if a deal will ever be reached. For Australia, the goal is to increase access to the EU market, but Brussels is holding firm. And also Australia, in asking Australia to stop using terms like feta and prosecco. Our political reporter Nicole Hegarty has more. Returning to the table little more than a month after walking away. Trade Minister Don Farrell has met with his EU counterpart, Trade Commissioner Valis Dombrovskis, via teleconference after the previous in-person meeting in Brussels. And once again, no sign of movement. For people relying on a good outcome, it's difficult to watch. But the CEO of Australian Grape and Wine, Lee McLean, is glad the government is standing firm. We don't want to see the government signing something that doesn't give our Australian wine producers the certainty they need as grape growers and winemakers, but also for the other commodities out there, we want to make sure that uh, as a government, they're signing deals that actually provide the kind of market access that, that warrants going ahead with it. We don't want to lock ourselves into a bad situation for eternity. The deal could cover two-way trade valued at up to $94 billion, but there's a lack of movement on two key sticking points. Australian beef, lamb, dairy, sugar and rice exporters want access to heavily protected EU markets. The European Union wants Australian producers to stop using geographic indicators to label their products, arguing names like Prosecco and Feta should only be used on products from the regions where the varieties were first named. Neither side shows any sign of budging. We all know that the European Union is a, is a challenging market uh, for, for Australian wine to, to, to really penetrate. For us, the, the key interest is really in those naming rights and the ability to continue to use those great variety names. 
After the meeting late yesterday, Minister Farrell put out a written statement insisting progress is being made and defending the time negotiations have taken. But now, more than five years after free trade discussions got underway, some are questioning if and how a deal can be reached. Dr Patricia Ranold from the University of Sydney is a convener of the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network. It's not clear to me where the breakthrough is going to come from. The real point of contention for Australia is that um, our government wants more access for key Australian agricultural exports. Australia's abundant reserves of critical minerals are viewed as a potential sweetener as the world transitions to clean energy. Don Farrell has left the door open to a critical minerals agreement with the EU, but Patricia Ranald says it's unclear what shape that could take. I'm not sure that they can offer that directly as part of the free trade agreement. I think that's more likely to be a side agreement like the one they have with the US and the UK on critical minerals. Don Farrell says both parties have agreed to meet again in person in coming months. Nicole Hegarty reporting, and I'm guessing that that in-person meeting with those trade officials won't be arrived at by jumping on board a live export ship. Now, the life on board one of those ships is not for everyone, and it's certainly not known for being glamorous. But Fiona Baird has been working on them for the past 13 years. Christy O'Brien jumped on board to find out what life for her is like. Fiona Baird's soul has always been most content outbush, whether it be the dusty Northern Territory tracks or highlands across the Tasman. When I was younger, I wanted to be New Zealand's first female stock agent. I used to stand out at at the washing line because we were on a big station and talk to myself as if I was a stock agent. All the same, landing smack bang in the Northern Territory's repressive climate and wild cattle was an eye-opener. I didn't have much to do with the cattle when I was younger. I was more involved with the tailing of the sheep. Dad did the cattle work. They were away mustering a lot in the high country. But, yeah, huge difference. And the heat, of course. Can you imagine? This well-groomed, lippy, always firmly on glamour isn't exactly what you'd expect mucking in on board a live export ship. Good to see you, boys. Good to see you. How are you? Good to see you. Beautiful. Got to have the hair high. The lips, and I take try to take How care of myself. You? I'm an old woman now, and I still, but you know, I feel good, and I, I'm feminine. I love girly things. I love fashion, makeup. That's my background. So why not roll into the cattle ships with that? You know. So good to see you, mate. How are you? For the past decade, life aboard a ship has been a constant. I've just kept it real for me, and I thought, well, if I'm going to be good at this, everyone will get right behind me and if I'm no good I'm sure I won't last very long so here I am still 13 years later. She sailed extensively throughout Asia, a few days, even weeks at a time. During COVID she was on board for up to 54 days on back-to-back voyages. This is where everybody eats. Often we'll um, get together and have a bit of singing, a bit of karaoke. Uh, So yeah, this is just where the mess hall, we call it mess room, and make your coffee here, eat your dinner. I had no idea that this sort of really existed. Uh, Working in the export yards, some of the exporters had mentioned to me, you should jump on a ship and give it a go. I think, you know, we think you'd be good. And that's how I started, is they put me on a ship. Um, I think I took, I 
can't remember now if it was 26,000 ahead up to Jakarta and Panjang. And while she was very much the lone ranger as a female stocky, she learned to hold her own amongst what could be up to 100 blokes. I've been on boats where the captain wouldn't give me, wouldn't even converse with me and um, I've ended up having to really run my own show and it's hard when the captain's not on your side. That was back in the early days and by the end of that voyage I was cutting his hair and we were talking about each other's lives and we bonded and he said to me, I'm so sorry, I've just never had a woman tell us what to do. So that was something I had to um, deal with and navigate in the early days, yeah. We'll run through a few bits and pieces. Thank you. Okay. So what have we got here, Chief? Perfect. On board, preparation is everything. Once at sea, help and port is a long way. Yep. Excellent. Okay. Okay, great. Yep, and we've got our space on each deck for our hospitals. Perfect. It's looking good. Being a nice load. On board this ship are 2,700 cattle sailing to Jakarta in Indonesia, which takes them about six days. The well-being of every animal is entirely in her care. The biggest myth of Australian live export is that the ships are death ships, which they are absolutely not, and that would just be bad business to put animals on a ship to just die. I think people are absolutely, absolutely the wrong idea about the actual vessels, and I, I wouldn't tolerate it if it was. I wouldn't be. I would be saying something, doing something as much as I could if it was like that, and it's not. That's Fiona Baird. And our thanks to Christy O'Brien for giving us that insight into her life. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour, and it's almost time to say farewell. But before I do, if the Queensland Country Hour group chat was anything to go by, I reckon you may or may not have caught this story getting around online. Camera crews in the US state of Nebraska have filmed a giant bull whose name is Howdy Doody, as it travelled along a motorway strapped into the passenger seat. The trip was cut short uh, when police took a bit of a panicked call from an onlooker. Here's the captain, Chad Raymond from Nebraska Police. The officers received a call reference, a car driving into town that had a, a cow in it. They thought that it was going to be, you know, like a calf, something smaller, something that actually fit inside the vehicle. There were some citable issues with that situation. The officer chose to write him a warning and ask him to take the animal back home. So Kadra Novak from the News Channel Nebraska has more details. They were coming from Neely, Nebraska and heading to Norfolk, Nebraska, just for an evening stroll kind of thing, even though it was in the morning. I was going to say, I mean, everything I've read about the story suggests they're just basically out for a drive. It wasn't that the bull needed to, to be taken to the vets or anything of that sort even. There was no practical purpose of it. Exactly, yeah. He was just taking him for a ride. Why? He does this often for parades. Uh, there was no parade in town this time, though. So it was just a random Wednesday drive, I guess. Okay. And how is an enormous bull, I mean, the bull is almost bigger than the car. How is the, the bull attached to the car? The man driving, he has kind of done a makeshift with an old police vehicle where he took out the passenger door and added a little bit to it as well as a gate to hold the bull in. 
I bet you there's some bailing twine thrown in as well. Have a howdy-doody weekend. That's it from the Queensland Country Hour. Thanks for your company this week. I'm Callie Buchanan. Time for the news now. It's one o'clock.